Hey, this is Pete Bauer from the Pete Bauer blog. Thank you for joining us today. Today I have once again my daughter, Dorothea Bauer. She not only has helped develop our Gabby Wells novel series, but she also went to college for marketing and public relations. And so she has helped to formulate our current and future and changing and evolving marketing plan for the novel series. So if none of you have heard of Gabby Wells, that's all on me. (laughs) That's true. And probably most of them have not. So we're going to have to talk about a salary adjustment. Yeah. I'm going to have to start paying you by the end of this. I mean, we're in negative. (laughs) That's right. You owe me so much marketing, (laughs) like savvy. Okay. The last time we talked, we were talking about the releasing of the first novel. And we were talking about beta readers and getting it ready. And our original intent was to have this ready in June, right? The first novel? Yes, our original intent was to have the book finished and published by June 4th. And the more we got into the marketing and the advertising of the book, the more we realized we were going to need more time than we had originally scheduled. I think that when we picked the date of June 4th, we were just so excited to get this story out there. And we really weren't thinking about all of the work that it was going to take. And not only on our side, but when considering the editors and the beta readers and the time that they need to do their job, we really didn't think about that. So June 4th was more of a dream than a reality, but it was a good dream to have and a good goal to work towards because we worked faster and harder and smarter. And in the end, we figured out what we really needed to do to make sure that we find a little bit of success in this series. Yeah, uh, June 4th was um, naivete. One of the reasons we chose the June 4th date was mainly out of ignorance, but you need a date, right? You need a goal to set. We kind of wanted to be ready for summer reading, and so that was kind of the idea there. And ideally, if if we could be there in time, we would probably still shoot for that date. But the more we've learned about the industry, and it's a very fluid industry, what works right now when we're recording this may not work by the time the book's released kind of thing. So it's a very fluid thing. And we found out from various sources and interviews with successful publishers, self-publishers, authors, I should say, that are self-publishing, is that you kind of want, it's, it's the funnel model we talked about last time, where you want to offer something for free and then get uh, probably 10 to 15% of those people to purchase the next thing in, in your item. So we were originally going to release the first novel in June, and then we thought, well, if we need to offer something free, we would do a novella based on uh, that would occur prior to the first novel. So we thought, well, you know, what would be cool is that we would release a, a novella prior to the release of each novel, and all of the novellas would take place prior to the first novel, but would each novella would have a similar mood to the to the books. In other words, the first novella would have a similar mood or theme to the first novel and the second novella with the second novel and so on. And so that was our plan. So we started working and I wrote the the Homecoming Incident as our first novella. And I recently just finished the first draft of that. But the problem was, is that a novella is short and that when we got done with it, um, the mood at the end of the first novella did not 
prepare the reader for the reality of the first novel. The mood is very different. In the first novel, there's a lot of things that happen in Gabby's life that are are pretty epic. So if you're doing something prior to that time, well, then things are much more lighthearted and frivolous and fun, as they should be. But it was it was kind of impossible within the short 25, 30,000 word novella to introduce characters in this pre-tragedy world and end that quick novella with the correct mood preparing people for the first novel. So then we had to adjust our plans again. Then we thought, well, the only way we're really going to be able to pull this off is if we write all of the novellas, all five of them, and then make them available before the first novel. Because over the course of five novellas, not only would you have a much greater understanding of history and of character, but by the end of that fifth novella, you could prepare the reader for the world that they're about to enter with Gabby and those people. And I think the stories that we've got planned, the ones that you've outlined for the novellas are very interesting, and I think they're going to be very entertaining for the readers. But I do find it rather amusing that we had this series sketched out, and you were planning to write these novels, and then you wanted to do one prequel to fit in with this model that you'd heard about on some of the self-publishing podcasts and blogs and things like that. And somehow you're now writing five novellas just because of some research that you've done. And they're good and they're entertaining and that's wonderful. But I do find it rather amusing that what we had planned to do to prepare ourselves for one book has now turned into so much more work. Yeah, it's now 10, instead of one book with the end result being five novels. It's now five novellas and five novels. And not only that, but depending on who you listen to, as far as successful self-publishing authors go, all of them agree in the current model that you want to release something every six months. Well, our original June 4th date, you remember, was that we were going to release a book every year on June 4th. That was the plan. And I thought maybe I could finish the novels and get them already within that time. Some people believe that you'd release something every six months, and then some people believe you release everything at once, and you allow people to consume all of your material at once. And one of the things that made me think I could actually pull off doing all these novellas is I, for Lent, as I mentioned on my blog, I offered up 1,500 words a day in writing to the Lord as part of my sacrifice, since these books are faith-based or faith-infused stories. And I thought, well, if I do 1,500 words a day, I think it was 90 days or something that I could actually write all five novellas. So I said, well, Lent is 60 days. It's 40 days plus weekend. So it's about 60 days. So if I just add another month to that, I could get all the novellas done. And then we could move right into making those available and then making the novel available. That seemed like a really good math equation, but um, it's still hard. (laughs) You have been writing constantly. Every time I come and check on you, you're writing again. And frankly, I'm just exhausted watching you. I mean, it's just, it's so tiring. I know. I don't know how you do it, honestly. I don't either. I'm really impressive. (laughs) (laughs) You are. You are. I mean, when I'm writing and you come into my office and you look at me, I I just want to hold you because you look so exhausted. Yeah, well, I mean, these books really are getting them in the way of a healthy father-daughter relationship. (laughs) Obviously, because we're not spending nearly enough time together. No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, because you're so busy writing. I know. (laughs) I've just turned my back on my family. 
but it, it's been a great experience. And one of the things that the interview I, I heard, I think it was on the self-publishing podcast. It was with CJ Lyons, and she's a very successful, she's a hybrid author. She does self-publishing and traditional publishing. And one of the comments she said, which, which I loved, was she only writes her first draft for herself. Now, she's a little different than me. She's what's called a pantser. And those are writers that write by the seat of their pants. They don't outline. They just go with the flow. And so when she writes her novels that way, she's just like, I don't care where it ties together. I don't even care if the scene fits somewhere later. I'm inspired and I want to write it. And so she writes for herself in that respect. I have learned, especially with this novella process, because I'm on such a tight schedule, looking back on all the things, even when I was writing screenplays, I've learned that what I really do is I, I... detail the first quarter of a story and I know where it ends and then I just start writing because the outline for me any more than that it ends up taking tangents as you write characters do things and say things that you didn't anticipate and suddenly how many times in the homecoming incident did I tell you um, I've ended a chapter and I'm I've written myself into a corner you know <laughs> oh almost every day yeah it was pretty bad but I mean that's a good situation actually because if you're able to successfully write yourself out of that corner then then hopefully the reader will have the same experience like how the heck are they going to get out of that. But hearing CJ Lyons say that was very freeing in the sense of I, sometimes when I write I would get so consumed with is it heading in the right direction? You know, I would I would just be analyzing as I was writing and just writing the first draft for myself. I would be like should I indulge in this conversation? Is this And I'm like, I don't care. I'm just going to write it right now. And that was very helpful because it allowed me to get out 1,500 words a day. And honestly, 1,500 words wasn't really the hard part because I've always typed really fast and I've written kind of fast. The hard part was knowing what to write because that was about a chapter. I tried to keep each chapter about 1,500 to 2,000 words. So basically, it wasn't the writing the 1,500 words that was a struggle. It was knowing what was going to happen in the chapter that I had to write the 1,500 words for every night. So basically, it was a new chapter every night. And that was the hard part. So when I was at my day job, I would be thinking in my free time, all right, what do I have to, what has to happen in the chapter tonight? Because I have 1,500 words waiting for me to write. So that was the hard part. So the basic idea was that you would write some sort of novella or prequel or short story that would be permanently free and available via ebook so that people who had never heard of you as an author might take a chance because it's a free book. And then if they liked it, they would potentially buy the next book and then the rest of the series. That's right, because the original idea was not just to give away the first novella for free. It was to give away the novella prior to each novel for free if we're going to do them one-offs like that. That was the original idea. So as we talked about marketing these books, a thought occurred to us, which was, are people really going to be willing to take a chance on this? Because we're not just entering the market as a self-publishing author. We're not just entering the market of mysteries. We're entering the market of faith-based mysteries, which truthfully doesn't really exist at the moment. Mm -hmm. And one thing we also considered was, will people see any value in it if it's free? Or will they think oh, that's free, it must not be very good. So in our discussions, one of the thoughts that occurred to us was, what are people going to think when we introduce this new market? What will their reaction be? Are they going to be willing to take a chance on this new kind of storytelling? 
And will they see value in a product that is free? Or will they find more value in a product that may be cheaper, but one that they have to pay for? Because something else that we came across in our research was that people are more likely to read the books that they pay for over the books that they download for free. For me, I've downloaded plenty of free books legally. I just want to throw that in there. (laughs) I've downloaded plenty of free books legally, but I haven't gotten around to reading them because the things that I've actually paid for have obviously been more important. Yeah, and we ran into this, this part of this strategy we're talking about now comes from, we believe that all these novels are equally entertaining and and would be applicable to people who aren't of a strong faith or just the average teen. We really do believe that. But our marketing strategy is to is to try to get the core fans, that niche fans, to be those people that would easily identify with this character, which are teens of faith. So that's going to be our primary focus. And when we looked at that from our experience with doing Sunlight Pictures in Christian film, and we talked about this on a previous podcast, so many of those were so poorly made, uh, the Christian films. And, and I don't think the same is true with Christian novels because it's a lot harder, honestly, technically, to make a film than it is to, to write a book in that regard. So the, so many of the Christian films were poor. That Christian entertainment in a lot of ways, outside of music, I think consumers are appropriately very gun-shy of putting their money into it. However, if you offer it for free... so. If I look at the marketplace and I'm like, well, historically not great quality has come out of this marketplace and now they don't even want me to pay for it, how bad is it really? You know, and that's kind of where we're like, well, does the perma-free model really work with this? If we were just trying to get into the standard young adult fare, which we hope to grow into, it would work. Or if we were doing romance novels or you know, military thrillers or something like that. But when I looked at in Amazon and I just looked up young adult Christian or young adult Catholic, I was amazed at how little to none fiction work there was. So Dorothy and I were talking about, from a marketing perspective, we not only are trying to establish the Gabby Wells brand and me as an author brand, but we also are trying to establish that brand in a marketplace that really doesn't exist. And if it does, it's a very weak and inconsistent marketplace. So the struggle's even harder. As we go back and forth, and this may change, we're thinking, well, after all those considerations, maybe we, we don't offer anything for free because it would be valued worthless. So maybe we offer the first novella for as cheap as you can do, which is 99 cents. And then offer the other novellas, you know, for like $1.99, or you can buy them all for like $4.99 or $3.99 or something. We haven't come up with that, and we can, we can play around with the price points. The challenge for us isn't just trying to make our book available. It's trying to make our book available in a market that kind of really doesn't exist. We also obviously plan to make our book available in the existing young adult market. I mean, that's just a byproduct of it being a young adult book, and that's fine. But with our marketing strategy of going after those core faithful teens, there's no marketplace specifically designed for them. And when we speak on Christian entertainment, we're not coming from a place where our work is so much better than theirs. No. Not at all. (laughs) We know it's incredibly hard to put together something that is successful and of good quality and incredibly entertaining. That's the reason that the people who do it well are so successful. 
it is a very difficult task and we hold our own work to incredibly strict standards and we have a lot of people read it because we really want to change the culture in Christian entertainment from being painfully bad to something that speaks to your soul and something that you really can identify with that is of good quality and that is also entertaining. So defining that market has been one of the most difficult issues that we've come across. I know that I had an experience when we were still Christian filmmakers. At the time, we were doing a lot of research on different Christian films, and we were watching a lot of films. And there was one day we were at a Christian movie festival, and I bought a film. And then when we came home, you wanted to watch it. And I honestly thought, but I did my Christian duty. I bought it. Like, why do I have to watch it as well? Why? So having to change that culture, and we were a part of it at the time. Sure. Um, it's definitely been one of the most difficult issues. But I think that if we're successful in doing that, then so much good is going to come out of it, not just from the things that we're creating, but from other people who are called to write and create and sell as well. Yeah, you know, it's just really hard to do any artistic work well. So when we harp on, I think the only way any marketplace is going to get better is to be honest about it. And the reality is, is no matter how many good intentions are behind Christian movies, most of them are very poorly made in comparison to the incredibly high standards set by Hollywood. And that's our consumption level. That's our consumption expectation is Hollywood. So if you're going to enter that arena then you have to live up to those expectations. A lot of films were successful, I think. A lot of Christian films were successful because not so much for the quality of the product, but for the message Christians were sending to Hollywood that there was a marketplace for Christian entertainment. So when we harp on Christian entertainment as a whole, as Dorothea said, it's not from any lofty or self-righteous location. It's just, in our opinion, an honest assessment. And the evolution of Christian entertainment as far as films and literature goes, right now it's very similar to Christian music in the 70s and the early 80s. There was a lot of Christian bands out there, but it wasn't nearly as mainstream enough because until digital technology came around and it was cheap and it allowed musicians to record digitally at high qualities for low money, a lot of the Christian bands in the 70s and early 80s couldn't compete with the secular bands coming out of Hollywood and New York who were using that top-level equipment. But just like in the publishing industry now, with on-demand publishing and digital ebook readers like the Kindles or Nooks or Kobo, that same paradigm shift is starting to happen now. When digital technology became available in music and Christian musicians were then able to be on a technological level playing field with New York and, and Hollywood, then all of a sudden their work rise to the top. And now Christian music is amazing. One thing you talked about, Dorothea, the other day was how some musicians, some of that music, it just it communicates your faith in a way that you can't communicate yourself, right? It really captures that. And so, you know, we're hopeful that our material will do that. But my point is, is that because of the evolution of digital technology and on-demand technology, it's leveled the playing field much like digital audio did in the mid-80s. So I think now that there's a lot of people allowed to enter the digital playing field, whether it's in movies or literature, just like early days in music, there were a lot of bands that made CDs, but very few of them rose to the top because they weren't especially talented or gifted. 
And so that same thing's happening now. There's a lot of people making Christian films that have good intentions, like those original musicians, but may not be gifted. And there's a lot of people self-publishing right now and making their books available on Amazon and, and Barnes and & Noble and Kobo because it is so easy to do. So the depth and volume of material out there is massive, but that doesn't equal quality. So we're trying to make the best quality that we're capable of, but we're also entering a market that is pretty vast and massive in volume and also into a specific market initially that is very limited and not consistent as far as the young adult faith-infused fiction. So taking all of that into consideration, the current state of Christian entertainment and the marketplace that we're trying to create and enter into, we really thought that releasing these novellas first would be the best way to kind of push our way into that marketplace because they're not very long. So if you're going to take a chance on it, it's not going to be a huge investment of your time or wealth or energy. You're going to be able to get through it a little bit quicker. And if it's something that you enjoy, there's going to be a lot more available for you in the future. Yeah. And I think the thing I love about the novellas, and we call those the Gabby Wells Chronicles, is that there can be an infinite number of them, really. I mean, the five novels are the end of the Gabby Wells path or journey. But there could be a ton of stories that happen before that, if there's a need, if the people want it if we can come up with creative stories to do it. So the novellas are a win-win in a lot of different ways. Like I said, we'll have to go through different ideas about price points and introductory pricing and overall pricing and so forth. And we have some ideas marketing-wise, again, that we'll get to uh, in the future once we, we go about that. One other thing I, I want to talk about this and, and before we move on to the last thing. You know, so we've had these beta readers waiting, right? We, we had our first round of beta readers read the first novel, and then we had primed a bunch of young teen girls to read the first novel and got approval from their parents or whatever, and they're ready to go. And then we decided to do the novella thing. And then we're like, oh man, this novella doesn't have the right tone at the end. So they're waiting to read the first novel. We're going to send them the first novella. We probably won't send them the other novellas because they won't be done because we still need to finish the... at the end of the day, I kind of want the first novel to be as done as it can be until the novellas are done. You know what I mean? I kind of want to check that off our production list and go, done. It may need to be tweaked before we release, but I want it done. So my thought is that we have all the beta readers, both the young adult and the other beta readers, to read the novella, The Homecoming Incident, and then inform the young adult beta readers that there's other novellas coming but this, we're going to have you read the first novel and it, the tone is darker and just let it go with that. Because I really want to get their feedback on that because the tone is so much different that if there's things that aren't working for them, we need to kind of look at it now. It's kind of this weird thing where you could wait until all the novellas are written because it may tweak what you write in the future novels or you find out feedback about what does and doesn't work in the novels and then if there's certain things that don't work in the novels, you may realize I need to seed that information, that understanding in the novellas. So there's this cross-pollination thing that is, is kind of interesting. And, and so I don't think there's necessarily a wrong way to go, but I, I, I think that's what we're going to do. So I, I want to get the, the first novella out to beta readers um, as soon as possible so that we can get those to the young adult beta readers after that and then give them the, the first novel. 
So that's sort of where we are right now in the process. It's a really weird journey to be on because there's so much that's undecided and so much that we have no control over. But there's a lot of hope for the future, and I think that we've got something really special that we're working on. So hopefully it will continue to grow and that it will all work out in the end. But it's a, it's definitely a weird place to be in right now, kind of in a state of limbo, but... I think it'll be good in the end and we'll keep you updated. It is really interesting because it is such a fluid environment. So one of the things that Sean Platt and Johnny B. Truant talk about in their Write, Publish, Repeat book, which I reviewed on my blog, they talk about the difference between strategies and tactics. And a lot of people confuse those two. So our strategy is to get it into as many young adult hands as possible. The tactic could be first novel free, first novella free, all the novellas for cheap. I mean, the tactic you can change. And so the tactics will evolve depending on the marketplace. There's some authors out there right now that are saying that when they take their books off of perma-free, there's no great difference in sales. So is the perma-free model losing its interest? Another author said that perma-free, you give away books for free and they're basically percolating on someone's ebook reader and you have no idea when they're actually going to read it. That isn't a bad thing. It's just that you may not see the results of that free giveaway for years, literally, before they finally get around to read it and possibly go pursue purchasing other material. So it's an ever-changing path for us, but at the end of the day, our strategy is still the same. We want to get it into as many young adult readers' hands as possible. Now, the last thing I wanted to talk about, actually two quick things. The first is on a self-publishing podcast, Sean Platt, Johnny B. Truant, and David Wright were talking to C.J. Lyons, who I mentioned earlier. And they were talking about the process of writing in the first draft for yourself and so forth. And Sean Platt had a really great way of putting the writing and rewriting process. He said the first draft is where you say it. The second draft is where you say what you mean. And the third draft is where you say it well. That's really a good, simple way to look at it when you're writing is what's my expectation on the first draft is just to get it on paper. And the second draft is to actually convey what you intended to get on paper. And the third draft and any subsequent draft after that is to make it say that the best possible way. And I thought that was just a very simple and effective way to look at writing. The other thing I wanted to mention is is J.A. Conrath, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. He was a traditionally published author who moved into self-publishing and has been exceptionally successful. He's one of those very successful outliers, makes a lot, a lot of money. And he has a blog, which I'll link in the show notes. And I love his stuff because he is so pro-self-publishing. He um, will take comments from traditional publishers and post them in his blog, and then he will comment on it and oftentimes challenge the assessment of the traditional publishing perspective. So he's very consistent in that. And one of the things I love is on his Saturday, March 15th, 2014th blog post, he lists all these things about just sentences that he says, here's what I know. And I want to go over some of these because they're really good things to think about. One of them is publishing is a business. Writing is an art. You may not enjoy the business, but you definitely should enjoy the art. Another one is success may involve talent and hard work, but it always involves luck. Talent and hard work may improve your luck. That was definitely one of the most important lessons that you and mom taught me when I was growing up, actually, was that you always have to be prepared for when opportunities present themselves. The moment that an opportunity presents itself is the moment of luck. 
you never know when they're going to come. You never know when you're going to bump into that person that's going to give you an opportunity to change your life. You have absolutely no way of knowing when those moments are going to happen. But if you're not prepared for them, if you're not ready for those moments when they happen, then they're going to pass you by. So success really is the product of talent and work. And the luck part is where the opportunities come in. But if you haven't been working and you haven't been developing the talent that you have, they're going to pass you by. So I really do agree with that quote a lot. Yeah, and that's true. I've actually been given opportunities that I passed up because I wasn't willing to sacrifice things for my family in order to pursue them. So I I certainly had different opportunities in my life that I did not pursue. My hard work and talent up to that time allowed me to take advantage of that opportunity if I had chosen to. Just through my life and observing other people's lives, everyone has opportunities to make a better decision to improve their life. And one of the reasons that we've talked to you guys about it is I've realized so few people are actually ready for that moment. So that's a good point. Another one of his sayings is ebooks are forever and forever is a long time to get noticed. And that's a good point. We talk about where these free books can percolate on your ebook reader for a year or two years. Who knows? You're stuck on a trip that you didn't expect to be waiting and you thumb through and find your book and you just start reading something you got a while ago. There's a word for a writer who never gives up published. (laughs) If you're selling eggs, don't piss off your chickens. I like that. Before you make the key, study the lock. In other words, if you're going to enter this publishing world, know what the rules are, know how it succeeds. You're not going to come in and if you haven't learned how books are written, if you haven't looked how covers are made, if you haven't looked at how things are marketed, well, your ignorance is not a competitive advantage. You're not trying to reinvent the wheel. You're trying to steer the wheel in your favor. It's about what you have to offer, not what you have to sell. And that goes along with the next thing he says, and and I'd like to talk about these two things, is what are the last 10 books you bought and what made you buy them? Use those techniques to sell your books to other people. Do what works on you. And I think that's really interesting because whether it's a fiction book or a nonfiction book, you're buying that book Something about that book is putting you over the edge to invest your money in it. I bought this Write, Publish, Repeat book because I've been listening to their podcast and I knew that they were doing a lot of things that made a lot of sense to me marketing-wise and approach-wise. And I thought, well, I want to know how they do that. So I was going to get immediate value for where I was in my writing and self-publishing journey. There's other books where um, I bought a book called Wounds by Alton Gansky. And I'd been reading and following his blog and seeing his interviews. And I said, well, this guy's written 40, over 40 books. Well, I want to see what kind of writer writes 40 books. So there was value to me. Plus, it was a good story. I bought another book from a friend of mine, Jeff Strand, who writes uh, young adult horror comedies. And it was a very fun book. He's kind of demented, but it's a lot of fun. But even if you look at nonfiction books, right, you're looking at this book is going to give me information. It's going to give me enjoyment. There was one romantic self-publishing author who was the one who promoted making your whole series available at the very beginning. Don't release books incrementally. Make them available at all time because in the romance world, she said she knows fans who read 30 books a month because they have some core thing lacking in their life that those romance novels fill, whether it's romance or love or adventure or whatever. So his point about look at the last 10 books you bought and figure out what made you buy them. Not, oh, I wanted to read it, but why did you want to read it? 
And that definitely is true. I know for me personally, I read the Hunger Games trilogy in three days. Quite literally, I read one book per day because I personally need to know how stories end in order for me to stop thinking about them. So that whole weekend, I was pretty much in the world of the Hunger Games. I did not leave it until I knew how the story ended. And the really amusing part was that I was in college at the time and had a paper to write which I quite literally did not start until 5 a.m. the morning it was due because that's when I finished Mockingjay. So there are definitely people who have that kind of passion for stories. So you have to kind of know what it is about those stories that draw people into it. And if you can tap into that, trust me, as one of those readers, it will definitely benefit you. Yeah, The Hunger Games is evil in that way. (laughs) It is so effortless to read and so oddly intriguing. Like, what world am I entering? It's so unfair yeah, suddenly you're like, uh, I should really go to bed, but there's only seven more chapters. <laughs> so you just keep reading. Another statement that J.A. Conrath said was, Praise is like candy. We love it, but it isn't good for us. You can only improve by being told what's wrong. You know, one of the things that I've learned from my son playing baseball all these years is that criticism, and this is also true because I was involved in theater for a long time, The only thing you need to figure out about criticism is whether it's true or not. It doesn't really matter how it's delivered. It doesn't matter whether it's delivered kindly or politely. What you have to weed through is, is it actually true? And I think most artists of any form know the weak spots of their art. And I think that if someone calls you out on it, you know it's true. At least in my experience. If I've had a performance where I know this one moment was weak and someone says that one moment is weak, I'm like, dang it, I wish they didn't see that. You're hoping that they don't recognize it. But the best people I've had read my work are those people who just always find that spot I'm trying to hide and call me on it. And so I always look at that criticism as it doesn't matter whether it hurts my feelings or not or it was told to me in a way that I didn't appreciate I have to weed through all that emotional crap and just decide, is it true? And if it is true, then fix it. Your book is your child. You can't recognize its shortcoming any more than a proud parent can consider their child dumb and ugly. And I say that in your presence. Well, I don't know, Dad. You've called me both. (laughs) That's true, but only (laughs) sincerely. (laughs) I think what he's saying is some people don't have an objectivity to their work. I agree with that. And it's difficult because we're doing all of this work, especially me, on all of these novels and novellas, and I'm incredibly invested in them. I'm sure there'll be one-star reviews on Amazon, and I'm probably not going to read the good or bad reviews, honestly. I just, I won't see value in it. I'll I'll let you look at the numbers because you're the marketing guru and see if we're heading in the right direction, but a random criticism from some source I don't necessarily trust isn't going to help me. I have beta readers and people I trust for that. But another thing to think about is that you're not always trying to gain the approval of the general populace. You're trying to reach out to a specific group of people, and you want to do that in the best way that you can to the fullest extent of your ability and with all of the talent that you have. You want to make it as good of a book as possible, But there have been plenty of book series that I personally think are terrible that have been incredibly successful. So, And the other way around. And the other way around. So reading and writing is such a subjective experience that I really don't think you can quantify it necessarily on a scale of 1 to 10 about how good it is. Your hope there is, I mean, obviously those numbers are there and they're really important in marketing. I mean, if you're an unknown or a new author and you have a bunch of threes and twos, well, 
write your next thing under a pen name because you've kind of lost that traction. So it is important, and obviously your goal is to, to successfully reach as many people as possible. But in the overall scheme of things, as a writer, you do what you're saying, which is I'm going to write to the best of my ability, and I'm just going to hope that it works. But when it comes to true criticism, like I said, I'm going to the sources I trust. All right, a couple more. Fate is a future you didn't try to change hard enough. Oh, and I love this one. Anyone looking for you can find you. Get them to find you when they're looking for something else. And that's where real marketing comes into play. That's where you want your book to be something that, or your material to be something that people find when they're looking for, um, like when people are looking for a young adult mystery or thriller, you want them to find you. And they're going to find you if the word of mouth is good, if the reviews are good. That's a great quote. I love that. I'll go over a couple more real quick. I don't want to isn't synonymous with I can't. In my past, I have made those synonymous, but that's actually a very good statement. Just because you don't want to doesn't mean you can't. This kind of goes to what we were just saying. Here's another one. There are a lot of things that happen beyond your control. Your goals should be within your control. So just what you were saying, right? You can't write books to please everybody. You write the best book you can and let the chips fall where they may. Knowing you're not original is the first step to becoming unique. If you've read enough stories going back to Greek tragedies, you realize there are no new stories. Nothing that you create in your mind, it may be new to you, but it's not a new story. Humanity is predictable and repetitive, and the human struggle is the same. It doesn't matter what clothes we're wearing or language we're speaking or technology we're surrounded by. The human condition is the same. So there are no original stories. It's just how you tell it. Don't prioritize the mundane. So a lot of times when you look at the list of things that you have to do, only prioritize the really important stuff. It's easy to prioritize stuff that isn't nearly as important because it's on your list, but don't do that. And the last one, luck doesn't mean you stop trying. Luck means you have to keep trying until luck happens. And that's what goes back to what you said in the very beginning, which is is making yourself prepared for when opportunities arise. So that's some advice that we found incredibly helpful in our journey, and we hope that you can find it helpful as you write as well. Yeah, definitely check out these blogs that I put in the show notes. There's just so much great material out there. There's a, a really good set of very open and giving self-published authors that are trying different things, that are succeeding in different things. And not everything will work for you because you may not be in the romance author space or the historical fiction space or the Dan Brown-ish sort of religious space. But some of the techniques and things that they talk about can certainly apply to you. So anyway, that's all the time we have today, Dorothea. Hasn't this been fun? Always. Sarcasm. I wonder if they got sarcasm on the other end of this. Do you think? No. No, no, no. No, No, it has been a lot of fun, and I appreciate you being here with me as always. So that's it for this time. We'll give you an update, hopefully, on our next podcast about where we are with our novellas and our beta readers and the feedback we have and how we've thrown everything we just said out the window and started over. (laughs) (laughs) And we hope your projects are successful. So listen, if you have any comments or any anything you want to say, please do not hesitate to comment in the comment section on these podcasts. We'd be more than happy to respond to you, point to you in any direction that um, we can help you find. 
Obviously, we're learning, and we're more than happy to help you learn as you go. And if you're interested in being a guest on our podcast or have any other questions you'd like answered, please feel free to contact us at contactus@sunlightpress.com. Okay, so that is, again, still all the time we have. We're over the time we already had. And we will see you guys next time.